Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, ECFR's podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of the European Council on Foreign Relations and today we're talking about sanctions. Sanctions have burst into the political stage as the weapon of choice for Western countries and I have three excellent experts to discuss them with me today. Uh, on the phone, we have Gerald Knaus, who's chairman and founder of the European Stability Initiative, and he's also a member of ECFR's council. I also have uh, on Skype Andrew Wilson, who's a senior policy fellow at ECFR and a Ukraine specialist. And here in London next to me is Anthony Dworkin, another senior policy fellow at ECFR, who for a while has been leading our work in the area of human rights, democracy and justice and has worked, among other things, on the European Union's human rights strategy. Unfortunately, it's a, an all-male cast today, for which I can only apologise. We're going to have to uh, make up for it in the next podcast by only having women. I don't know whether I'll be allowed to, to present it, but anyway, we'll deal with that later on. So why are we talking about sanctions now? And I think the starting point is really that they have become the tool of choice at the moment, whether it comes to our policy towards Russia, towards Iran, but also even between non-Western powers, geopolitical disputes are increasingly being addressed through the use of of geoeconomic tools like sanctions. What I'd like to do is to address two big questions. Firstly, a general question about sanctions and the European Union. Why are they on the on the rise? What do their, does the, our increased use of sanctions tell us about uh, the EU as a as a power in the world? And secondly, going to I think it would be good to to talk about some specific uh, sanctions uses. So Azerbaijan, Belarus is a. a a country that the EU's had sanctions against for a long time. We've recently done a paper on that, which was quite controversial. Uh, but also the Russian sanctions are also coming up for renewal, and that is going to be a really big deal within the European Union. So let's start with the, the general uh, question. And maybe before I uh, come to you, Gerald, to, to kind of open it up, I'll, I'll quote um, Philip Hammond, the British Foreign Secretary, who was speaking at a conference in London last week. And he said that the EU is groping its way towards understanding just how powerful a strategic tool the sanctions weapon can be. And it would be a disaster if before we've even deployed it and explored its capabilities, the EU were to demonstrate by not renewing sanctions that it cannot do this. So he he carries on. There's a question about whether the EU, which does not have and won't have a military capability, wants to develop a genuinely powerful alternative source of strategic power in the sanctions weapon. So that was quite remarkable in that it was not just a a, a talk about whether to use sanctions or not. It's a very self-conscious promotion of sanctions as this sort of new super weapon, which we're seeing increasingly used in different areas. And maybe it does mark a shift in how people think about sanctions, because when I was growing up, the basic idea was that sanctions um, were... Uh, something which people did when they didn't really have any good options. It was a form of displacement activity. There's a great quote in The Economist um, which uh, sums up that general approach from about 10 years ago. And it says, sanctions may feel better than nothing. They're less feeble than scolding an ambassador and less bloody than sending in the Marines. They provide a frisson of moral satisfaction. And that did seem to be certainly 
the the feeling about people who wanted sanctions at the time of Saddam's invasion of Kuwait, for example, there were a lot of people who wanted sanctions then, and it was because they wanted to avoid war, and this was a sort of way of doing nothing. So anyway, um, Gerald, do you want to uh, tell me what you think uh, the rise of sanctions tells us about the EU, and then maybe come to you, Anthony, and uh, and we can take it from there. Yes, well, thanks a lot, Mark. I think you you defined the, the range of the debate very well. And I, I think it's important when we discuss sanctions to not fall into either of the two extreme positions. I mean, one, you said, is this argument that they are a super weapon, uh, an alternative to uh, to violent regime change by bringing about dramatic changes at low cost. And I don't believe that sanctions really uh, can fulfill this role usually, or that that's really the main reason for, for having them. But I mean, that's one position, the super, super weapon argument. The other one is it's, 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 uh, it's a cop-out. It's, it's just better than nothing. Uh, so it's, you want to pretend you do something and so you do sanctions, which of course is also useless. But I think there is a more, much, more, much more useful way for sanctions, to think about sanctions, which isn't to expect too much of them, which isn't necessarily even to always think about what short-term impact they will have but about what they tell you about the institution that imposes them. I mean, if you think about the European Union, it has this very strong rhetorical commitment still to human rights. So it says in its human rights strategy that it will throw its full weight behind advocates of liberty, human rights defenders. And yet what we see in Europe today is not too many sanctions, but countries where human rights defenders are thrown in jail and there is no reaction at all from the European Union. So not a moral sanction, not a symbolic reaction. And I think what sanctions can do, and this is perhaps their most important use when we ignore cases like Iran, where it's really about getting the regime through tough sanctions to do something very difficult for the regime. But normally, sanctions are really about stating our values. So about it's a form of identity politics. Rather yeah, it, no, it's, 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 it's sending a signal to people in prison that they go to prison, but they're not alone. There are people who share their values, their, their sacrifice is appreciated. These values are real. Because what autocrats have been telling dissidents for, for generations, and they told it to Charter 77, and they told it to Sakharov, they told it to all the giants of the human rights movement, they said, you know, you, you, lie, you, you lay yourself down on a railroad, but history is the train that will cut your legs off. You know, you are alone. You are against history. And sanctions from the EU, a powerful body, send a signal that there are values in which the EU believes and even if right now we can't actually do much for the people in prison, and they are the courageous ones who pay the price for it now, we are sending them a signal they are not alone. And we know from what they've said once they are released that this is what dissidents uh, find extremely important. So in that sense, that's, I think, one of the major arguments for sanctions is what they signal about the values the EU believes in and what they signal to the people who are the human rights defenders Europe wants to stand behind. Okay. So there's a kind of typology of three different sorts of sanctions out there. There's like about them getting other people to do different things. And I think, Anthony, it'd be great to hear to what extent you think the thinking's developed on that, because Iran is seen as a kind of example of us actually getting a country to, to do difficult things as a result of things. Second idea is displacement activity. So it's an excuse to do nothing. And thirdly, it's about this sort of moral signaling, which is partly about us 
but it's also about giving hope to oppositions in the long term. Do you think that covers the range of things? And how can you maybe talk a bit about how the first things developed, Anthony? Because that that is something which is a bit new. This idea that the sanctions can really make a difference. Yes, I mean, I think when we're talking about the EU and sanctions, or about sanctions in international politics more generally, you know, we have to see sanctions as something which not only have more attention now, but sanctions have evolved significantly. So the old image of sanctions was as a kind of sanctions as a pretty crude tool. Effectively, you would sanction the society. And what was associated with sanctions in the old days was the picture of the kind of the starving population. You know, in that way, sanctions were the kind of economic version of a kind of carpet bombing approach. And in the same way as military technology has become much more refined and much more targeted, the same thing has happened with sanctions. So we have smart weapons and we also have smart sanctions. Um, And I think it's that, you know, particularly um, the way sanctions have evolved is this kind of idea that you can ratchet them up and ratchet them down and you can also target them very specifically um, on certain individuals. And in that way, I think sanctions have become useful as a way for um, condemning individual behavior while still maintaining a relationship with a regime or society more broadly. Uh, but in terms of how the sanctions have, have come to be used, I think the, you know, we have seen examples where over the long term sanctions do seem to have had an impact. And Iran clearly is one of them. Um, And uh, another example that some people would cite would be Burma. So um, I think it's quite hard, though, to kind of isolate a a rule or a law about when the sanctions work in that way. It's so dependent on contingencies, on geopolitical alignments, um, and so on. But, you know, nevertheless, it does sometimes happen. But I think the, the other thing that is a significant feature where I think the EU has sometimes fallen short on sanctions is deciding what they're for. And this brings us on to to Gerald's other point about the kind of demonstration effect of a display of our values. Um, And I do agree with him. I think that sanctions are valuable as a way of showing that we're standing with people, um, even if they're not going to change something in the short term. But there's a danger, and the danger is that the EU hasn't decided whether sanctions are there to achieve a specific result or there to show that we don't like something. And if so, do we just leave them there? So quite often, and I think this is the worst thing that happens with sanctions, they get put on with a kind of condition. We're going to have sanctions until you have an independent inquiry into the massacre in Uzbekistan. Um, And then there isn't the political will to maintain that. Uh, And then the sanctions get lifted without the result having been achieved. And so my question for Gerald would be, when we come back to this point in the conversation, you know, does this demonstration effect simply stay there or does it have a kind of inbuilt half-life. I mean, that, that is the perfect segue to talking about specific cases. And I think Andy, as a man who spends an unhealthy amount of time in countries subject to sanctions, is the perfect person to take us uh, into that discussion. But maybe before we do that, I'll just posit- uh, drop one other thought into the discussion, which is the unspoken thing behind all this is, is that the increased interest in sanctions is also a kind of product of the decreased interest in warfare and putting boots on the ground. And certainly when it comes to Russia, 
one of the reasons why we can't afford to do nothing is because there has been a major threat to the European security order. But at the same time, it doesn't. There isn't a huge amount of desire to put troops on the ground and to to get involved in a world war against uh, Russia, or even to to do peacekeeping and the other sorts of things. And I suppose people are banking on on it being an effective um, thing. So what you said about the, I mean, I, I think for a while we've been looking at some of the parallels between drones and uh, and sanctions, and the way you were just talking about it was very much within that context. But maybe the best way into these issues is to start thinking about specifics. So Andy, maybe based on your kind of experience on the ground, you've been looking at a lot of the countries that we're talking about. Russia is something that you've worked on for ages, but you've also just written a. a policy brief very recently about Belarus and uh, which is provocatively called from sanctions to summits I think and that's something that that, uh, certainly Gerald um, has got some stuff to say so do do you want to tell us how you think these things play out in practice? Uh, Sure yeah I'll also talk a little bit about Ukraine as as well as Russia and Belarus Uh, I mean people use the word smart a lot about sanctions that's also to do with globalization the way that that makes um, Uh, globalizing regimes more vulnerable and it's also about the kind of u.s myth of big data the way that you can identify um, points of vulnerability in that globalized world but smart i think also should mean other things um it shouldn't it should mean that sanctions hurt uh, hurting elites more than uh, general populations as anthony was saying the most difficult part of sanctions i think is exit strategy um identifying sort of points of decision making where the targeted country uh, might come to feel the pain and uh, change its decision making Um, which is what is different about belarus russia and ukraine Uh, the problem with belarus i think is that there are more than 200 people on the list Uh, some of them are bureaucrats but a lot of them are so-called oligarchs and the idea was that we could use the sort of collective economic power of the EU against a relatively small country to get these guys to sort of gang up and get Lukashenko to change his mind. The problem is that Belarus isn't an oligarchy. Um, These so-called decision makers are not independent in the way that we probably originally thought. And Lukashenko is arguably also an oligarch, but his interests are very much concentrated domestically. With Russia... um, Russia obviously is an oligarchy um, to the extent that there are several um, layers. And the problem at the moment is that uh, decision-making seems to have been narrowed, uh, that Putin makes his key decisions with a very small circle, uh, some of his so-called friends, friends of Putin, who are also oligarchs, but mainly guys in the security sector and the media, um, which tells us a lot about his current politics. So we're kind of waiting for the people in the second layer to have more impact on the people in the first layer. That's with Russia. With Ukraine, retrospectively, uh, talking about the Yanukovych period in particular, um, I think we were very, very uh, weak and slow to put sanctions on. There were many indications at the time that the elite was worried about possible Western sanctions. That explained the kind of staccato pattern of repression you had at the time and now there's a lot of research to say that this is exactly what was happening in private that Yanukovych's hardliners were constantly restrained by softliners who were worried about possible 
sanctions. Um, so to, to, to wrap up, you know, we should we need an, a, a good analysis of how regimes work, how they make their decisions, uh, if sanctions are, are to have the impact that we want them to have. Because this is, in a way, brings us to quite an interesting point, because we seem to be going down these two routes where, as Anthony said, on the one hand, you have sanctions, which are sort of this finely carved tool to get people to do things. So whether you have sanctions or not depends on your analysis of the power structure within the society and the likelihood of you actually being able to impact on things in a positive way versus Gerald, who sees sanctions as a moral act, which is about um, signaling what kind of values we kind of believe in and therefore would mean that you should have as similar sanctions towards different countries as possible because if not you're confusing your kind of morality so any country that does a specifically bad thing should get the same sort of sanctions um uh relate to it how, how do, you, do you, gerald in your mind how do you um reconcile these two things it'd be great to hear Ant anthony in as well Yes. Well, I, I think I think one really needs to look at the specifics in this case. I, I agree with what's been said before. Uh, the smartness depends on our analysis of, of, of the situation. So let's take Belarus, for example. I mean, we don't have trade sanctions except for, you know, specific things related to the military or repressive apparatuses. Uh, we trade a lot with Belarus and we give lots of visas to uh, Belarus citizens. Uh, what we have in place are sanctions that have been put in place and removed and put in place again and removed again in reaction to specific things which happened. You know, we had sanctions uh, which have been sometimes in place just for one year and then lifted because things happened. I don't want to go through the whole history of the sanctions, but it's, it's not been one thing. And in December 2010, when repression was particularly bad and when there were lots of people arrested, um, the EU did put mainly, and, and the ECFR paper shows this nicely, mainly people from law enforcement, from the justice system, from prisons, from the court system, who are part of that apparatus of repression uh, on sanctions lists. And I, I think it's very important to distinguish again between types of sanctions. What I advocate, what I think we can use for symbolic signaling, and which I argue has worked. I mean, this is, I think, where empirically the report on Belarus is, is, is misleading. Because it has even worked in Belarus. In 2006, people were released. After 2010, the number of political prisoners has gone down. What has worked have been targeted individual visa ban and asset freezes on individuals somehow involved in the repression. And I think this is indeed something that we should have also for Azerbaijan. Um, and it is something that doesn't prevent us giving lots of visas, even reducing the fee for citizens to travel, trading, engaging, meeting people. But it is important as long as, and I agree with uh, both Andrew and, and what, what you've said before, uh, defining the target, as long as there are political prisoners, and now there are still six in Belarus, these sanctions should be maintained. When they are released, as has happened in the past, on Belarus, on Moldova even, there have been individual sanctions which were then lifted, when the specific cause is removed, they should be lifted. But then they should be put it back in place when people get arrested again. I think this is doable, this is the right thing to do, this is effective, uh, and, it, and it also has worked. I was going to bring Anthony, but maybe we should hear from Andy first, because you have done this paper which is kind of um, suggesting that maybe we're banking too much on sanctions in our relationship with Belarus and other countries. I mean, what's your response to what Gerald just said? 
clearly the number of political prisoners has gone down. I think I think for slightly more complicated reasons. Um, that um, it's also to do with uh, the state of Belarusian relations with Russia. When they're bad, um, uh, Lukashenko puts out feelers to the West, and part of that process can be a, a diminution in the number of prisoners. Um, so yes, in part, that's um, in order to pr improve relations with us, and we have these demands on the table of a uh, about uh, conditionality in that process but i think it's it's also indirect because it's the role of russia too um but the main point in the paper was uh, the events in ukraine um yes there are still political prisoners uh, and one of them is is a very important guy called uh, bilyatsky um a guy who has been fighting for human rights uh, and and suffered accordingly uh, precisely the kind of category that uh, gerald pointed out we should be depending so we can keep sanctions on because these guys aren't all out. Um, but there are these broader questions of, of geopolitics, uh, Russia's pressure on all of its neighbours. Uh, and if we want to engage with Belarus there, uh, there have to be other channels. Um, I wouldn't exaggerate the, the possibilities here. And it's uh, about rail politics. It's not about domestic liberalisation. Uh, and the degree, degree of possible change is also limited. So... If the offer is limited and we're not interested, then that's all we do. We leave sanctions on. But if we want to achieve things in other areas, then we need other policy instruments in parallel. But Andrew, can I ask you, is it not, could there not be a few things, you know, and I agree it shouldn't be broad-based or too general, but a few things like political prisoners, according to, you know, Council of Europe definitions, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, or torture. I mean, a few of the core human rights values. If a regime puts behind bars human rights defenders, dissidents, and opposition politicians. I think it is, it should be almost automatic that the EU then responds by targeting with visa bans, which is a very restrictive thing. It's just you cannot travel to us, members of that regime, and can lift it when people are released. My evidence from looking at Eastern Europe in the last 20 years is that every time we've done it, it has also had an effect. I mean, if you look at your map... But, but the, the, Gerald, the, yeah. if you, you... I mean, Anthony looks like he's desperate to come in, but you're setting the bar pretty low for, for visa regimes. Presumably, 90% of the world's countries would be subject to some kind of sanctions according to that criteria, because well, at least uh, at least a majority of, of countries will do stuff that somehow goes against our definition of values. If you, you know, putting people in prison we don't approve of, even the United States might end up subject to kind of no, no, under no. those criteria. No, well, I think that, well, I mean, we are, we, are, we are really talking about countries in the Eastern neighborhood that have signed the... Oh, yeah. you know, so Canada you want an Eastern exceptionalism then? No, no, not exceptionalism. Countries that have signed up themselves to, you know, the, the Vienna Declaration, basic rules, ODEA, you know, and, and neighbors to the EU where we know the situation well. It's okay. not hard to find out what's going on in Belarus or, or, or Moldova or Azerbaijan or Russia. So we should be nauseous to those that are closest to us. Anthony, what, what, you were desperate to come in. Well, I think that there's, there's a big question about sanctions, which is precisely how far this kind of requirement of consistency extends. And naturally, my sympathies are with what Gerald says. And yet, you know, I've been working quite a lot on the Middle East recently. And if you look at the situation in Egypt, you know, there's no doubt that Egypt under President Sisi qualifies in all the terms um, that Gerard listed, political prisoners, it outranks any of these countries. Um, the, the use of torture is 
pretty routine now, I think. Um, you know, and yet we're, we're not talking about sanctions um, against Egypt. And I guess the reason is because Egypt is further away and we have less kind of, you know, less influence, less linkage. We don't have that degree. Um, and also I think Egypt has other places to go. So inevitably with sanctions, you do end up where with this kind of opportunistic element. You know, Mark, you tried to distinguish neatly between, on the one hand, the kind of carefully tailored sanctions based on whether we can get away with them, whether they'll work. Um, on the other hand, the sort of moral demonstration. But the fact is you can't separate them out. Um, and inevitably there's a sort of messy element. So we can have sanctions against Belarus. It's harder in the case of Azerbaijan because they have more things that we want. Um, but I would like to see a tougher stance on Azerbaijan. Um, Egypt and Saudi Arabia, you know, are, are our principal allies in the Middle East, um, richly deserve sanctions on those terms as well, not to say about going further in the world. So I think it gets you into some quite complicated um, dilemmas where I suspect there's no easy answer and it has to be some combination of moral principle and opportunism which isn't a particularly comfortable place for the EU, but I don't see a better answer. But, I mean, in, in that sense, though, it's no different from any other kind of power, because, you, you know, sometimes we're going to need to intervene militarily to stop genocide, to stop people uh, dying. But, you know, nobody was advocating military intervention in Chechnya, for example, when even though objectively some of the conditions there were, were as bad as some of the arenas where a very wide number of people thought we should intervene for obvious reasons and I think sanctions will probably be similar no well yes except it's you know it's very clearly accepted in the case of the use of military force as Tony Blair laid out explicitly in his famous Chicago speech that uh, you know having a, a use of force that's going to be effective is a kind of undoubted criterion for whether you resort to force um, whereas I was with, here, a, under Gerald's um, doctrine, being ineffective is uh, it's, it's almost a badge of honour as well. Well, the, the oh, no, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's actually I think the the record of these kinds of sanctions being effective is very very strong, including in Belarus. If you actually analyze it closely, but I think that's not the major point. We make some of these sanctions. I mean, it's. It's was it the right thing to say to you know to to sanction South Africa or Milosevic or Serbia and here and, and you know these were very comprehensive sanctions here we're talking about a few people not being able to travel I think the symbolic the, the encouraging value to dissidents in jail obviously makes that useful in itself but then the record is pretty good that people are released and Azerbaijan is the best example uh, where we've had pressure in the uh, I mean ten years ago in the Council of Europe. Then the pressure stopped. And now Azerbaijan is the largest number of political prisoners in Europe, despite us engaging. And in fact, we even give them aid. The European Commission gives them uh, grants. Um, and yet, uh, we've had no influence whatsoever. So we, we, I think we've covered a lot of the ground here and there are lots of really interesting ideas that have come up. One final thought, maybe from each of you, is to what extent do you think um, sanctions are here to stay and the growth of sanctions will continue or are we um, having a slightly artificial discussion here because you know like so many discussions about the use of power western countries have been better placed to use them in the past 
So we're kind of worried about our consistency when we use them and don't use them. And, um, you know, the question, I suppose, is, are we about to enter a more multipolar world where people are both better at hedging against the use of Western sanctions by developing their own national payment systems or credit cards or not using the dollar as much, uh, but also where some sanctions like this might make us feel very uncomfortable. I mean, we've had counter sanctions and sanctions from Russia and from China in different areas. They haven't had much of an impact on us so far. But how, how do you think this is going to uh, develop? And do you think it will change the sort of debates that we're having now? Maybe a 30 second answer to that question from each of you before we, we wrap up. Anthony, do you want to go first this time? Yeah, and I think the, the point that I'd like to highlight is one that you raised there as well, which is as well as these very individual targeted sanctions, visa bans and asset freezes and so on, we, the, the other new thing that we've seen recently is this kind of broader financial sanction, which is being deployed against Russia, has been deployed in some other cases. And um, as you implied, Mark, the, the key thing about that is that it's really its effectiveness depends on being tied into the dollar as the global reserve currency. And so it gives the U.S. banking system this kind of extraordinary extraterritorial reach. Um, But that's a tool which can only be used up to a certain point before it's like a a kind of antibiotic. The more you use it, uh, the more it provokes a kind of, you know, uh, an immune response by other countries. Um, And I think doing it against Russia is the kind of, so far, the testing point of that. And it will be interesting to see whether it does become something which, you know, ultimately creates the conditions for its own diminishing effectiveness. Gerald, what was your last take on on this? Well, as you said, life and politics is complicated, but sometimes it's easy. Uh, And in rare situations, I think, where we are dealing with countries in our neighborhood, which are putting in jail human rights defenders... The choice is really, do we do nothing or do we do something that might send the, the right signal? When it comes to economic sanctions, you know, the debate or geopolitical sanctions like with Russia over Ukraine or Iran over the nuclear program or Milosevic over, you know, Serbia in the 90s, there you enter a completely different debate where, where really you have to look at, at, you know, the analysis. Of, are they likely to work? Are they likely to have the impact? But when it comes to sanctions as a tool to affirm our values, it's, it's something that I think we should do, even if it makes life a little bit more complicated. Um, and it's something where we are really in the tradition of, of the European history of human rights with Sakharov and Havel and everything, all the foundations on which today's Europe is built. Andy, last word to you. Well, in globalization terms, we may be in a transition period. Um, in terms of information, of course, we know more about more societies than we did in the past. Um, so we're more likely to feel the more pressure to intervene. Um, but the nature of the transitional period may be that we're not quite at a genuinely multipolar world. We still have this situation where the US has a predominance of financial power. It's not the global cop, but it might be the global prosecutor um, joke that the people have made. Um, but the key question, of course, is will this kind of um, US-led process therefore accelerate that movement towards a genuinely multipolar world in terms of currencies and banking systems, etc. Wow, that was a pretty interesting discussion. I think we're going to be returning time and again to the sanctions topic as they become more and more widely used in different areas. But thank you very much to all three of you for, for the discussion. We now have one last uh, piece of work, which is the bookshelf segment. Um, so 
uh, Anthony, do you want to go first? What's on your bookshelf at the moment? Yeah, well, the thing I've been reading, which is actually going back to the military side of this, but looking at the similar process of, um, you know, what people have called the individualization of, of warfare, it's this quite interesting article by a retired American Air Force lawyer, Charles Dunlap. Um, it's called The Hyper-Personalization of War, and he's talking about the intersection of technology um, and the cyber realm and big data and positing this world where you know individual small weapons could be sent out onto the battlefield able to use facial recognition software to kind of hunt down specific individuals and um, individuals could be sent targeted emails or they could be you know their um, computers could be hacked and so on so it's really taking warfare down to the the individual level. And Charles Dunlap, he's not a household name, but um, he is famous as the man who invented the concept of lawfare. So he has a, a track record of uh, predicting important developments in, in armed conflict and legal regulation, and it's worth paying attention to him. And he quotes Trotsky on the front page of uh, his article. So American uh, military leaders quoting Trotsky, that has to be interesting. Uh, Andy, what are you reading at the moment? Uh, my book is uh, semi-relevant, um, Stalin, Paradoxes of Power by Stephen Kotkin. A uh, very interesting uh, first in three volumes looking at Stalin's life. It's about the importance of ideology to Stalin and the people around him. Um, what will be interesting in the second and third volumes is how important ideology was in the late Soviet era and how that carries over to the Russia of today. Thanks, Andy. What about you, Gerald? What are you reading? Well, I'm, I'm going through again Michael Santowski's book on Havel, A Life, the biography of the Czech dissident and then president. And it's just fabulously well written. I mean, Santowski is a former ambassador, friend, advisor of Havel. Very, very gripping story. And of course, the, the, the life story of Havel and the story of dissent, especially at times when Europe looks lost and prone to pessimism, it's quite useful to to go back to the Prague of the 1980s and see what happens. Makes you feel better. <laughs> okay, I'm going to, instead of talking about what I'm reading, I'm going to do a bit of shameless log rolling here. So I'm going to mention three things which are very relevant to our discussion. Andy's paper from summits to, what's it called? From sanctions to summits about Belarus um, is uh, fantastic. Gerald has also got a great new article which is about to come out called Europe and Azerbaijan, The End of Shame. And I have uh, been doing some work over the last period of time on the whole question of geoeconomics. And I chair a Global Agenda Council for the World Economic Forum. And we produced a paper earlier this year called Geoeconomics, Seven Challenges to Globalization, which looks at a lot of the different uh, uses of economic power in this globalized world. And the whole first chapter of that is about the rise of economic warfare and sanctions. So that brings this podcast to an end. There are links to all the papers that we talked about on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. And from Anthony Dworkin, Andy Wilson, Gerald Knaus and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. <laughs>